Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Come with me if you want to live. It's okay, Mom. He's here to help. It's okay. everyone, I'm Emma and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 175, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome to Verbal Diorama, all of you amazing listeners, whether you're brand new to this podcast, whether you're a regular or irregular returning listener, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast no matter how you found this podcast, I'm really happy and grateful to have you here for the history and legacy of pretty much one of the biggest movies that I think I'm ever going to do on this podcast ever, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And this is a really big deal because this movie just defines so much. It left such a legacy that's still being felt today and Wow, there's there's so much to go through on this episode. So strap yourselves in because there's so much to go through. Before I do that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to previous episodes, especially this month, because this month is quite a big month because I'm only doing sequels. It's something that I call sequel timber. And it's sequels to movies that I've already covered on the podcast. So I've done Spider-Man 2 and I've done Blade 2. 
And last week I put an episode out on WandaVision, which last week's episode was supposed to be this episode, but I was sick. And I had WandaVision because it was like a Patreon exclusive episode. So I had that kind of in the back catalogue. And I thought to myself, well, you know, WandaVision, technically it is a sequel. So yeah, that was something a little bit different, but it's actually been received really, really well. So that's lovely. But honestly, this episode on Terminator 2 Judgment Day is so huge that there's no way that I could have done that the week that I was sick. So honestly, I'm just really glad that I had an episode to put out. It wasn't the episode that you expected, but hopefully this episode will make up for the fact that it wasn't here last week. And as I said, sequel timber, sequels to movies that I've already covered on the podcast. And I did The Terminator pretty recently. So that was 11 episodes ago. And I know that that episode was really well received. You guys love that episode. And I'm hoping you're going to love this one too, because Terminator 2 Judgment Day really is the daddy of all sequels. It is the sequel to end all sequels. It's still groundbreaking to this day, and it's never been bettered in its own franchise, or most franchises, to be honest. This is my favourite Terminator movie. And I remember seeing this when I was a kid and having the biggest crush on Edward Furlong because I found the Terminator so frightening, as it's supposed to be because it's a slasher. I always preferred this one. And this one was always on the TV when I was a kid. And so I watched this a lot. But it wasn't really until like I became an adult. I'm still questioning whether I am one of those. But it wasn't until I grew up that I think I actually appreciated the majesty of Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And even now, everything about this movie, the, the plot, the pacing, I mean, the effects, oh my God, there's so many amazing effects in this movie. It's still so much my jam. I will happily sit and watch this. I was delighted to sit and watch this for the podcast. I actually finally bought it on Blu-ray for the first time for this podcast. And yeah, I'm I'm so happy that I did because now I can watch it anytime. And I also have all of the different versions to watch as well. So the theatrical, the extended, the special extended, all of those. But James Cameron always said that this was a movie about the Tin Man getting his heart. You want a trailer for Terminator 2 Judgment Day? No problemo. I'm not going to do any more terrible accents in this episode. Here's the trailer for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Same make. These were taken at the West Highland Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. Once, he was programmed to destroy the future. I don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now, his mission... Get down! ...is to protect it. Mom! Come with me if you want to live. You're really real. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy... He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. ...is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. 
You just can't go around killing people. Why? If you thought you had seen it all... Look again. Stay down! Go! Now! Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. Ten years after the failed assassination attempt of Sarah Connor by Skynet sending back a Terminator to kill her before she gives birth to the future leader of the Resistance, the machines send back a second Terminator a more advanced liquid metal shapeshifter, this time to kill John as a young boy. The humans reprogram a T-800 Terminator and send that back to the same time to protect John. John and the Terminator break Sarah Connor out of a mental health hospital so they can stop the predicted Judgment Day. Let's go through the cast of this movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, a reprogrammed Model 101 Series 800, Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor, Edward Furlong as John Connor, Robert Patrick as the T-1000, Earl Bowen as Dr. Silberman, Joe Morton as Miles Bennett Dyson, Jeanette Goldstein as Janelle Voigt, and Xander Berkeley as Todd Voigt. Terminator 2 Judgment Day was written by James Cameron and William Wisher and directed by James Cameron. And as I mentioned, episode 164 of this podcast was on the Terminator. And like with all the episodes this sequel timber, they all have previous episodes. And like all of them, I'm going to be doing a previously on. Obviously, if you haven't listened to episode 164 and you want to find out the history and legacy of the Terminator, please go away and do that. But otherwise, here's a brief rundown on the history of the Terminator. So, previously on Verbal Diorama, the idea for the Terminator came from James Cameron's fever dream while making Piranha 2 The Spawning. He sold the rights to his draft script to his writing and producing partner, later wife, Gail Ann Hurd, for one dollar. This is important, so put a pin in that. The original idea was way more complex with two Terminators, but this was the early 80s and one Terminator was more than enough for a low-budget slasher movie. Obviously, the idea for two would be recycled into Judgment Day's script. Cameron and Hurd shopped the project around before landing at Orion Pictures, who agreed to distribute the movie if they could get the financial backing. And so, to get this backing, James Cameron enlisted his friend Lance Henriksen to appear at the meeting with John Daly of Hemdale Film Corporation, dressed and acting as The Terminator. From this, Daly agreed to finance the sci-fi slasher horror The Terminator for an initial budget of $4 million. And this was a small-budget, low-risk slasher movie from the point of view of Hemdale. And again, put a pin in them because they're important too. At the same time, James Cameron was writing Alien 2, which would become Aliens. This is also important information for the future of this episode. But at the time of The Terminator, no one knew this would become a hit franchise. Cameron happily sold away his rights to get the project made, and he was none the wiser as to the wider ramifications of doing it at the time. 
Visual effects were done by Stan Winston Studio, who did the animatronic puppets, and the stop-motion work was by Fantasy 2, both of whom would return for work on Terminator 2, but the evolution of VFX would break new ground on Terminator 2. And I don't need to tell you that the Terminator had been a surprise, but big hit, earning $78.4 million on its final $6 million budget. But unlike most sequels, Terminator 2 had a longer gestation period than most, and this was due to several factors. The first was James Cameron's career, which blossomed after The Terminator, and he went on to make Aliens in 1986 and The Abyss in 1989. And The Abyss is also essentially a proof of concept for the story of Terminator 2's visual effects, but I'm going to be coming back to that one too. But there was a bigger issue, that of John Daly of Hemdale Film Corporation, remember them, and it was that Hemdale owned a significant portion of the rights to The Terminator, but John Daly and James Cameron really did not get on. Additionally, remember his wife, Gail Ann Hurd, who he originally sold the rights to for $1? Well, they'd subsequently divorced, so there was no love lost there either. Add to this the fact that Hemdale was struggling financially at the time, and Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger knew that Hemdale would end up selling the rights to the franchise to make money. But John Daly would never sell the rights back to James Cameron. James Cameron didn't want some random studio having the rights to make Terminator movies without his involvement. And so Cameron and Schwarzenegger came up with a cunning plan. Blackadder. If you don't get it, you don't get it. So their cunning plan was to get Carol Coe to buy the rights from both Hemdale and Gale Ann Hurd. Carol Coe would end up paying $10 million to Daly, $5 million to Hurd, and $2 million in costs to acquire the rights to the Terminator. At the time, Carol Coe was financing Total Recall, also starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And because Mario Casar, the owner of Carol Coe, had shelled out $17 million for these rights, he told James Cameron he would give him $6 million to write a script for a Terminator sequel because the movie was going to be made with or without Cameron, but it was preferable with. Cameron contacted his fellow Terminator writing buddy William Wisher to co-write the script, which by that point was already behind schedule. And James Cameron had two ideas. The first was Skynet sending back a Schwarzenegger Terminator to protect John Connor from another Schwarzenegger Terminator who's programmed to destroy him. It would be Arnold v Arnold, with Schwarzenegger reprising his old role as well as his new reprogrammed role. The second was a highly advanced experimental liquid metal robot out to terminate John this time around. So Cameron just merged the two ideas together, a returning Schwarzenegger as the protector versus a brand new lethal Terminator that can morph into anything and a Terminator that would look like a police officer. Mostly so that as an authority figure, this Terminator wouldn't be questioned if he was out searching for a young delinquent boy. James Cameron was always insistent that Terminator isn't about machines. It's about humanity's tendency to become machines. The idea of a mother and son story where the son is the future leader of the human resistance against the machine uprising and a mother who knows the future is pretty grim and that future is her son's future. Obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in, but James Cameron knew he needed Linda Hamilton. He didn't want to do a Terminator movie without Sarah Connor, and he didn't want to recast Sarah Connor, but resolved to work around her absence if she didn't want to return. Hamilton wanted in, but wanted Sarah Connor to be 
driven crazy from the future she knew about, and Hamilton didn't just commit, and nor was the character actually committed, but Linda Hamilton committed herself fully. Before filming, she had personal physical training with Anthony Cortez for three hours a day, six days a week for 13 weeks. She got firearms training from former Israeli commando Uzi Gal. She learned judo and rigorous military training methods. She exercised hard with weights and weapons. Even while filming, she had to adhere to a strict low-fat diet. She ended up shedding 12 pounds. She had never used a weapon before, but after training, she impressed James Cameron by hitting every target with a machine gun on a shooting range. Despite impressing as she did, there was still a huge pay disparity between Hamilton and Schwarzenegger. She got $1 million to reprise her role to his $12 million. Did he do 12 times the work? And it was something that annoyed Hamilton, and quite rightly too. But like most women paid less than men for the same job, at the end of the day, you're still just grateful to get paid. But Linda Hamilton put in serious work in this movie. She wanted to emulate how Sarah would be. She actually inspired Schwarzenegger to train harder himself. And Schwarzenegger reportedly wasn't actually paid in cash, but by a Gulfstream 3 jet. And this was to lessen the financial burden on Carol Co. because they could pay for the jet in instalments. But you can't pay Arnold Schwarzenegger in instalments. For 13-year-old Edward Furlong, who was scouted at a boys' club in Pasadena by casting director Mally Finn, Furlong gave attitude to Finn immediately as she approached him at the club by reportedly calling her Frog Lips. Furlong had no acting experience and auditioned among a 100 other young boys and the responsibility for choosing the right kid for John was one of those things that could be life-changing for whichever kid they chose. But Furlong had this pain and surliness and intelligence that Cameron felt the other kid actors just didn't have. In getting the role, he was required to take acting lessons and learn Spanish, learn how to ride a motorcycle and repair guns. Obviously, being 13 and being shot in a movie during at a time when let's be honest, most kids experience a growth spurt or two, meant that Furlong looks visibly different in some scenes. And because of his voice breaking, most of his audio, as with most of the audio in the entire movie actually, ended up being re-recorded in post. For Joe Morton, it was a Richard Pryor joke that got him the role of Miles Dyson. When James Cameron asked him why he wanted the role, Morton replied that, Richard Pryor said that the reason Hollywood either kills off the black actors in sci-fi or if they're not in it at all is because Hollywood doesn't think we're going to be here in the future. And that was enough to give him the role. He avoided speaking to Schwarzenegger and Hamilton off screen to make their on-screen relationship believably distant. And reportedly Denzel Washington was offered the role of Miles Dyson, but he declined it. Now, let's be honest, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's an imposing man. He's tall, he's built, he's stacked. And he was so integral to the production of this movie. And so the casting choice for his Terminator antithesis, the T-1000, had to be someone different. James Cameron wanted someone physical, but a different physique. He wanted a lean physique opposed to muscular. Someone who could convey the thoughts and actions of a predator, but not the type that audiences were used to from the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator. Someone who could move fluidly and be a serious threat. 
James Cameron liked the idea of Billy Idol originally for the role, but he had a bad motorcycle crash in 1990. He suffered a broken leg and wrist, which took him out of contention. Robert Patrick met with Mally Finn and gave off intense vibes, which impressed her. He performed in front of James Cameron as an animalistic hunter with no emotion and did a screen test in a cop uniform, which was the look that Cameron was after. Even his trademark stride was perfect. Patrick was inspired by Arnold Schwarzenegger's portrayal in The Terminator and also by the hunting behaviours of animals like reptiles, insects, cats and sharks. Patrick exhibited eagle-like facial expressions and kept his head tipped downward to suggest ongoing forward motion. In contrast to the hard skeleton of the T-800, he suggested a more fluid movement by adopting a military posture and performing martial arts moves. Robert Patrick needed to be in top physical condition for the movie. He also trained under Uzi Gal, putting in four hours a day of jogging, weightlifting, judo, martial arts and meditation so he could sprint without looking tired or out of breath. He was taught to handle and reload guns like the T-1000's Beretta 92FS without looking by weapons trainer Harry Liu and eventually mastered firing guns without blinking. And I am going to have to come back to Robert Patrick because he's key to the groundbreaking effects in Terminator 2 as well. Terminator 2 was not just another sequel because it eclipsed the original in every conceivable aspect due to its size and scope. It was, at the time, the most expensive film ever made. It was said to have cost more than $90 million, a figure Carol Coe denied. The budget started at $60 million and just climbed. But while the budget could be expanded, the time available couldn't. Three months of pre-production was truncated to meet a tight release schedule, which meant Cameron had to reduce his prep time. He still spent hours every day choreographing the vehicle scenes using toy cars and trucks. This footage, once filmed, was used for reference for storyboard artists. And with a rising budget and a concise shooting schedule, tensions ran high on set during filming. I mentioned in the episode I did on Aliens that James Cameron was notoriously difficult to work for and that the British crew on that movie walked out at one point due to Cameron's excessive firings and temper tantrums. Well. T2 was no different. James Cameron's temper and dictatorial manner led to the filming often being laboured and anxiety-inducing. Frustration started to creep in because Cameron was so demanding that his vision be perfectly executed. So maybe James Cameron really is the Terminator after all. Filming took place almost exclusively in California at 6th Street Viaduct in downtown LA, Van Nuys, Canoga Park, Santa Monica Place Mall and the Bull Creek Spillway, a 9.6 mile long tributary of the Los Angeles River. For the siege at Cyberdyne, an abandoned office in San Jose that they really did blow up, that office was chosen because they could fly helicopters next to the building. And James Cameron employed real SWAT officers as background officers in that scene. And if we're going to talk about filming this movie, then I think we're going to need to talk about some really fun stuff. We're going to need to talk about some car chases and some practical effects and some CG effects. So I'm just going to jump literally straight into this vat of molten steel, whatever. Let's just go for it. So in order to film the climactic highway chase, 
A 2.5 mile stretch of the Terminal Island Freeway near Long Beach was closed every night for two weeks. The Future War of 2029 was filmed in the ruins of an abandoned steel mill in Oxnard, California, an area that was enhanced with burned bicycles and cars from a fire that occurred in 1989 on the Universal Studios lot. Effects like flying vehicles were added in post-production. The final scene was filmed in the abandoned Kaiser Steel Factory in Fontana. And because this place was abandoned, they were not making molten steel. And so this effect was primarily accomplished using prototype 0.5-inch diameter and 12-inch long 1500-watt T3 tungsten lights. Lighting consultant Richard Muller added two banks of eight lamps in the middle of each fiberglass pore, and from a distance they appeared to be a single solid line with an orange fluorescent lamp on either side. The mill, with its moving machinery and towering catwalks, was terribly cold at the time of filming, even if it appeared to be actively smelting steel. The huge vat, which the two Terminators are destroyed in, was a mix of oil and powdered sugar, 400 gallons of the stuff in total, augmented by 30 par 64s and another 20 par 336 tungsten lights. It took six generators to power all of the lights in the steel mill. One of my favourite facts from this movie, actually, and you're going to realise I'm going a bit back and forth in the effects in this movie, and I apologise, there's just so much to go through. But Xander Berkeley, who plays John's foster father, Todd, really practised sword swallowing for two weeks before shooting the scene in which the T-1000 impersonating his wife Janelle, stabs him through a carton of milk. At any given time, three separate blades genuinely pass down his neck. One was a straight blade with a handle on the opposite end, allowing the puppeteers to keep it out of the way and pan the length of the blade when they underpinned him and he fell to the ground. He had to stay in that position on the ground for hours in a pool of milk and a pool of blood, which James Cameron personally swirled each time. The six-month shoot was finished in March 1991 after Cameron insisted people work over Christmas, including Schwarzenegger himself. It finished roughly three weeks behind schedule. Hamilton described the production as the most difficult, exhausting, physically and emotionally stressful experience of my life. She also suffered permanent partial hearing loss after forgetting to wear earplugs in the scene which the T-800 fires a gun in the hospital elevator and experienced shell shock from months of exposure to violence, loud noise, gunfire and action set pieces. Conrad Buff IV, Richard A. Harris and Mark Goldblatt edited Terminator 2 and they received an Academy Award nomination for their troubles as well. They noted that while there was more time to edit than on The Terminator, it was still comparatively brief given the sequel's larger scope. They also noted the complexity of scenes like the final battle between the Terminators, which necessitated a seamless integration of live action, practical effects shots and CGI. James Cameron only allowed five days of filming per week for Terminator 2 so he could begin editing the movie on weekends after having to rush editing at the end of The Abyss. And this is a great moment to actually segue into visual effects because that's why we're all here, isn't it? Let's be honest, that's why I'm here. So I can tell you about the amazing visual effects of Terminator 2. And Terminator 2 is lauded for its visual effects, a seamless blend of practical and early 90s CG that was so groundbreaking, it paved the way for ILM's work on Jurassic Park. 15 to 17 million dollars of the film's budget was allocated to the entirety of its special effects, including 5 million dollars for the T-1000 alone. 150 visual effects meant ILM couldn't manage the work alone, and so it was segmented. 
ILM, under special effects supervisor Dennis Muran, managed the computer-generated effects. Stan Winston Studio, the prosthetics and animatronics. Fantasy 2, who also worked on the Terminator, as I said, developed miniatures and optical effects. And Forward Productions were responsible for creating a nuclear explosion. Pacific Data Images and Video Image also provided additional effects for this movie as well. Let's start with ILM. You know their name. I don't need to tell you who Industrial Light and Magic are. So they underwent a significant expansion because the scale of Terminator 2 did not allow for the six-person at the time CGI team from the Abyss to be able to manage the effects required. And so the team was increased from six to 35 people, including software engineers and animators hired from all around the world. 11 powerful silicon graphics processors, five medium-powered and 10 modestly-powered silicon graphics computers were among the $3 million worth of new technology the business purchased. An additional $500,000 was spent on software development, especially for Terminator 2, tools like Make Sticky and Body Sock, which I'm going to come to. And remember, this is 1990, a time when a gigabyte of storage was $9,000. Can you imagine getting a gigabyte of storage today for $9,000? As much as I really want to go into the specifics of every special effect shot in Terminator 2, gosh, we would be here forever. This episode would go on forever. But I want to go into as much as I possibly can. And there's actually a terrific article by Befores and Afters, which is where a lot of this information was sourced from. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Please check out that article. It is absolutely terrific. It's the full oral history of the tech of Terminator 2. And it's a long read, but it's such a worthwhile read. There's so much amazing information. And it's coming from the people who genuinely did this work. People who I'm going to be referencing shortly. But Link in the show notes. Please have a read. You will find it completely fascinating. Quite a lot of the tech and tools that ILM had to work with had actually been inherited from Pixar as well as Lucasfilm, products such as Renderman, which I've mentioned so many times on this podcast before. And really the starting off point for making Terminator 2's effects possible wasn't just the previous work of Pixar and Lucasfilm, but also The Abyss. Internally called the Water Weenie, the pseudopod water creature was made with a single monolithic software given a cyberware face. Computer graphics software developer John Schlag would disintegrate that one tool and basically start pulling bits off and enhancing certain features such as water ripples for when the T-1000 gets shot. But the question was, how can you move from a creature like in the abyss, which is very inhuman, to something that acts and moves like a human? It was Wavefront Technologies who worked on the Abyss and an initially ruled out tool called Alias. And along with the tool came Steve Williams from Wavefront. Repurposed data from the Abyss could be used, but there were other facets of the T-1000 he needed to accomplish. The meant teams were created for each category of the T-1000. There was a pseudopod team for the repurposed Abyss footage, a morph team, a death team and a human motion team. The team had Robert Patrick come to ILM where they painted a 4x4-inch grid all over his body, basically a precursor to modern motion capture. They would have him walk towards the camera, run, stand still, stand in a crucifix pose, and he would be shot by two VistaVision cameras exposing simultaneously, one from the front on an 85mm lens and one from the side on a 50mm lens. 
Patrick's walk was then rotoscoped by Williams, digitising his body and movement data and creating a database of his virtual character. Five versions of Robert Patrick existed. RP1 was simply a blob. RP2 was a silver humanoid. RP3 was a sandblasted version of the police officer. RP4 as a metallic liquid metal police officer. And RP5 was the live action Robert Patrick. And the idea was to travel between these different versions of Robert Patrick as seamlessly as possible. They used body sock to make an automatic stitching tool to stitch the seams between each joint and connect different versions of Patrick. For when the human looking T-1000 is shot and seen healing, a mix of practical and CG effects were used. John Schlag used a utility from the Abyss called Z-Ripple, or Z-Ripple, I guess, if you're American. For the scene where the T-1000 is seen coming out of hiding on the hospital floor, it took a bit of time to figure out how to go from a flat surface to having a face appear. And this was the very early 90s, so any test examples would be left to render overnight. So you never knew till the next morning if the process worked. Translating from alias to Renderman, they made an intersection and created a surface from the intersection, made a big checkered square, and then Liza Keith, she animated a T-1000 head, and that started to gain shape and move up through the static computer-generated floor that was matched to the live-action footage. Interestingly, the floors of the hospital, they weren't actually checkered, but James Cameron thought it was a good contrast and it looked creepy. And so the real-life filming had some poor crew member sticking down black stickers onto a completely white floor to get the same effect. The shot of the T-1000 coming through the hospital bars was done by Make Sticky, a precursor to the 3D paint system, where you had a line, a geometry underneath the frame, and being able to preserve a texture along that geometry. You would take a texture map, a flat orthogonal image, with theoretical points of the entry and exit, they created a cyber scan mesh of Robert Patrick's head, took that geometry and pulled the control CVs around the forms of the object to push the head through the hospital bars. As the geometry moves, you maintain the same texture coordinates adhered to the geometry at those spots by using Make Sticky to remember the coordinates that a texture was on in a previous frame. Two plates, one with the bars in place and one without, were shot with Robert Patrick walking through. A computer model of Patrick, created using a match modelling process, was then merged with Make Sticky to make it cling anywhere it crossed the bars. It was actually James Cameron who came up with the idea for the T-1000's gun to get caught in those bars to make the effect appear more realistic. Only the elevator opening was filmed for the subsequent sequence in which the T-1000 uses its blade arms to pry through the elevator door. The rest was created digitally. In response, the T-800 shoots the T-1000 in the face, causing its head to explode. The splash head effect used two puppets that could move and a prop that Patrick's stunt double wore. The first puppet, which was based on a clay life cast of Patrick, was created to represent the T-1000's head rupturing. With the exception of the split portions, which were built of EST-50, a robust, lightweight, flexible urethane, the puppet was primarily composed of foam rubber and contained pulleys that allowed the two halves to be pulled closed to show the T-1000 beginning to heal. And in a lovely callback to Willow, because I won't take any opportunity to call back to that wonderful movie, I did an episode on Willow. It's back in episode 16. And the reason why I'm mentioning Willow is because the scene in the steel mill 
where the T-1000 hits the wolf face first and then instantly morphs back into himself, was done using Doug Smith's proprietary software Morph, which had been originally made for Willow to transform animals into human. Have a listen to the episode of Willow for more on Morph and how revolutionary that piece of software actually was. It was also used on Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And really, if you haven't seen Willow, please watch that movie. It's so wonderful. And I feel like I'm going to keep bringing this up, but this movie was made at a time when CG was still in its infancy, really. So bringing the T-1000 to life in Terminator 2 was a risky undertaking because there was no backup plan in case the CG did not turn out as expected or could not be successfully composited with Winston's practical effects. The computer systems required to animate and render the T-1000 cost thousands of dollars on their own, but other visual effects and filming methods were also used to create the character. The five minutes of screen time where the effects of the T-1000 appear required that entire crew of 35 people at ILM, and the process was so complicated that rendering just 15 seconds of video could take up to 10 days. But this is not a movie that is just CG. There are so many practical effects in this movie, a surprising amount achieved by the use of twins, such as Linda Hamilton's twin sister Leslie in the scene where the T-1000 is imitating Sarah, and Morph is also used to morph Leslie Hamilton Gearan back into Robert Patrick as well, and also in the famous extended mirror scene, which is in the extended edition of the movie, where Sarah and John open up the T-800 skull, where there's a puppet version of Schwarzenegger in the foreground, made by Greg Feigl, and a pretend mirror set up in the background, with everyone mirroring the action shown, even the background is mirrored. The twin scientists from Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Don and Dan Stanton, portray the Pescadero security guard and the T-1000 impersonating him. And I've already linked this movie to Willow. Of course, I'm going to link this movie to Grease 2 as well. And really any excuse to link any movie to Grease 2. Gary Davis, who choreographed the motorcycle stunts for Terminator 2 as the stunt coordinator, he also did the motorcycle stunts in Grease 2. He is the cool rider. I mean, if that doesn't make Terminator 2 Judgment Day even better, I don't know what could be. But Gary Davis did the bike jump scene into the spillway. And the bike they used isn't a Harley Davidson, but a modified lookalike. It weighed 750 pounds. It was required to jump 60 feet, ridden by Schwarzenegger's stand-in, Peter Kent, who wore a latex replica of Schwarzenegger's face. And because the stunt was too difficult to do without it, a rig was built to carry both the bike and the rider. Pacific Data Images were actually in charge of removing the rig and wires from this scene. The preceding truck chase was filmed at an intersection in San Fernando Valley and it meant the truck had to smash through a false cinder block at 60 miles an hour and fall 30 feet into the concrete channel below. How they did that was an elaborate pulley system with two smaller trucks essentially slingshotting the larger truck to the required speed. They only had a permit to film for nine hours. This permit expired at noon. And 15 minutes until that permit expired, they still had not achieved the stunt. And not capturing it would have meant throwing away six figures in cost. Ten minutes before the permit expired, they got the shot they use in the movie. And the scene was modified in post as well because James Cameron wanted the image flipped. So the image was flipped to show the crash coming from the other side, but it also meant they had to flip street signs as well as darkening the windows so the quote-unquote driver was on the correct side for an American vehicle. For the scene where the T-800 cuts away his forearm skin to reveal the robot hand underneath, this 
arm was sculpted by Greg Feigl based on Schwarzenegger's measurements. It was constructed from foam rubber, it had a false shoulder, bicep and forearm that was moulded over the metal arm created by Charles Lutkus to provide a precise fit. To make the foam more durable, Karen Mason sewed a tight spandex understructure onto the piece. This foam had been ejected into the piece's core during production. Since the foam was only about 1/8 inch thick, it would have been destroyed if dragged away without the support framework. The metal hand was smeared in blood and lubrication before the skin was pulled over it, and the forearm flesh was pre-cut and covered in flesh tone paint. Then, after cutting along the lines already marked, Arnold would pull the skin away. Stan Winston was dissatisfied that the metal arm created for the Terminator could only move all of its fingers at once, so this one was made with realistic and individually articulated fingers, which were also utilised for some of the shots in the future war sequence. And of course, any creature with a metal endoskeleton with human flesh covering it is going to deteriorate over time. And one of Stan Winston's earliest concerns was the T-800's progressive degradation when it sustains injury. The discussion of seven different visual stages was condensed to just three. So you'd have the undamaged Terminator, the metal endoskeleton seen in some areas of the forehead and cheeks, and the final stage, you can see more of the underlying metal structure in the face and body, as well as a mechanical eye and metallic chest plate. This third final stage had to be used for roughly 30 different days of filming, as opposed to just three days on the Terminator. It took five hours to apply the makeup and an hour to remove each time, Arnold Schwarzenegger's young daughter visited him on the set of this movie and was genuinely terrified of seeing her father in the makeup effect. One of the criticisms that I always see online for The Terminator, the original 1984 version, is that the puppet doesn't look very good and it doesn't hold up very well to modern audiences. And one of the things I love about this movie is there's puppet work in this movie that you don't even realise is puppet work. And I didn't even realise that this was puppet work. But they actually made a full life-size puppet of Schwarzenegger. And it was used in the Cyberdyne scenes as the SWAT team opened fire on the Terminator. That is not Arnold Schwarzenegger walking towards the SWAT team. That is a life-size puppet. And that was mounted on a walking rig inspired by Jim Henson's puppeteering techniques. And it even emulated Schwarzenegger's walk so that you didn't know that it was a puppet. Not only was there a full life-size version of the puppet, there was also a harnessed version that a puppeteer had on their shoulders. And this puppet had 30 squib charges applied to the side of its face and its body to go off at certain points. I never knew that was a puppet. I never knew that was a puppet. And that is mind-blowing. But that is the majesty of this movie. There's so much going on in this movie, you just genuinely believe it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's not. It's a life-size puppet that walks like him. One of the most famous scenes in the movie, and there's, oh, there's so many. There's so many famous scenes. But one that always strikes me is the nuclear war scene. And this is the scene from Sarah's Dream. And it's an absolutely phenomenal achievement to have this complete nuclear explosion. And this is a combination of practical effects, miniatures and light CG. This was developed at Forward under the direction of Robert Skotak and Elaine Edford. And they photographed areas around Los Angeles to use as reference for the miniature sets. And this was basically, they wanted to build a miniature cityscape and then blow it up. 
Demolition tests were performed beforehand to judge the scale and scope of the explosions. A custom explosion program was built by Mark Granger and animator Marcus Hoy to simulate nuclear blast effects on the model with controlled speed and gravity. Eight takes were required to achieve the desired results from three cameras recording the action at 120 frames per second. Every additional take required a complete rebuild, which took up to three days to re-rig and redress the set. One of the improvements made at Cameron's request was to change the air cannons and pulls so that the buildings crumbled sequentially rather than all at once, from the back of the view to the front. To do that, they timed the firing of the air cannons and tripped the pulls sequentially from a computer. A flying car was filmed on a separate blue screen and combined optically. The park required a complex interaction of wire pulls and forced air effects. Cameraman Jim Belkin had to pull the telephone pole over in exact sync at 60 frames per second, a four-lane freeway with a sweeping overpass trimmed with ground vegetation and palm trees, clusters of office buildings. Everything had to look like it was exploding at the same time. Palm trees were rigged with wire pulls and one-eighth scale dead bodies all had to match the direction of the nuclear blast. And the scene ends with scorched skeletons being swept away by the shockwaves while Sarah, watching on, catches fire and is reduced to a skeleton. Linda Hamilton couldn't retain the required agonised face while a plaster life cast was created, so they made three waist-up puppet recreations of Hamilton based on scans by Cyberware. A styrofoam bust was made using the data as a foundation for the puppets. The first puppet showed Sarah on fire. That had a flexible stainless steel hydraulic hose in the neck to produce movement as the nuclear blast struck. Articulated arms on ball and socket armature controlled by cables. An articulated jaw to show her screaming. Puppeteer Richard Landon controlled the puppet as the area caught fire while wearing a Kevlar fire suit that was covered with fire gel. The puppet was then covered in flammable rubber cement that was remotely lit with squab sparks to create the illusion of a burned out Sarah. To keep it from falling off the barrier, its fingers were fastened to it. This puppet also had an internal mechanism that snapped the head backwards because the usual wires could not withstand the heat of the blast. This also included jaw articulation so that screams could be added in post. And it is one of the most effective scenes in the movie because you will never forget that scene of Sarah Connor being blown up by a nuclear blast while trying to warn people of the impending judgment day. It really hits home how serious this movie is, that literally life can be extinguished in just mere seconds. There's a particularly well-referenced and well-parodied scene where the T-1000 enters the steel mill and he's walking in liquid nitrogen. And as he's walking, he starts to freeze. And this is another one of those really fascinating sequences that I genuinely never knew how they did. And one of the most amazing things about doing this podcast for me is finding out how they did stuff like this. And so for this scene, they actually contacted a guy called Larry Johnson. And he's a partial amputee. And he was used in the production to simulate the T-1000's legs snapping off at the knees. And so in order to be able to do this, prosthetic limbs were put into a pair of urethane boots. They were split into several sections and a cable device was routed through each component to hold them together. This was for the shots where you only see the legs, of course. Robert Patrick also wore clothing equipped with cable-controlled artificial arm that connected to a false hand 
that was placed on the ground where the character loses his arm. The pieces would separate as Patrick stood up after leaning on the arm. They also used a false floor so that Robert Patrick could be photographed in a certain position with his real legs hidden to look like he was basically standing on stumps as the T-1000 completely freezes. A silicon mould was made from a puppet reproduction of the reference image to produce a thin gel coat resin figure that could be filled with gleaming metal flakes and over 300 vacuum metallized shards. The model was covered in primary explosive cord, basically so that they could blow this mother up. Three air mortar guns were placed above it to ensure the pieces fell flat because Cameron wanted it to shatter like shattered glass and fall to the ground rather than explode, sending parts in different directions. The melted pieces coalescing was done using mercury. Not the first choice because, don't you if you know, but mercury is kind of poisonous. They tried lead solder and wax, but that didn't achieve the desired effect. And so the crew had to wear protective gear around the mercury. Merging it together was simply the mercury on a three foot long table, which could be subtly pulled down, allowing the droplets to flow together. And this flow was composited into the live action footage of the mill. And if I haven't mentioned your favourite visual effect in this movie, well, I'm sorry about that. There's so much to talk about in this movie. And I feel like this episode is going to be a pretty long one anyway. But I just wanted to highlight some of the amazing effects in this movie and just what an absolutely genius piece of work it is. Terminator 2 was shot on film as well. And so the visual effects artist had to scan that film do the CG work and then scan it back onto film. That was actually done with a laser scanner recorder that Pixar had, which meant that you could scan film, you could digitize it, you could work on it and then reverse the product back onto film again. And it was the start of what would become completely digital filmmaking. Digital compositing was commonplace, but it consisted of command line scripts. The modeling and animation in Terminator 2 was rudimentary, but is still mostly how visual effects artists work today, except with better hardware and software. And obviously it takes less time to do this sort of stuff today. But the achievements for Terminator 2 Judgment Day really don't stop here. They, they continue. The T-1000 is listed by the Guinness World Records as the first major blockbuster movie character generated using computers. Terminator 2 was ranked as the 14th most influential visual effects film of all time, by the Visual Effects Society, but it is worth noting that despite the film's groundbreaking effects, a piece by The Guardian would claim that they felt the movie resulted in CG laziness, a dependence on computer images above real-world effects, stunts and workmanship. And I think that's a really interesting point because I do kind of agree with that, that this movie is so revolutionary and so important that a lot of people have took this movie for its groundbreaking CG. And Hollywood's kind of gone a little bit crazy with CG now. We don't have that reliance on practical effects anymore that this movie still maintains is so important. And it is so important. The reason why this movie doesn't age or ages less than other movies in its own franchise is because of those practical effects mixed with the CG. That's the important thing. I know that I go on about this a lot. I don't want this episode to turn into a rant about practical is better than CG because I genuinely don't believe that wholeheartedly. But what I do believe is when you have the perfect mix like this movie achieves, look at what you can do. If you have a great story and you have great actors and you have this wonderful effects work going on as well, 
this sort of stuff is genre defining. It's almost cinema defining. There's nothing like Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Really, not even in James Cameron's own repertoire. You could argue that maybe Aliens is kind of up there as well, but Aliens didn't have this reliance on CG. Aliens was a completely different beast. Excuse the pun. Hollywood can make terrific things. And speaking of terrific things, I'm going to segue <laughs> into the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. So if you don't know what this is, I try and link the movie that I'm featuring every week with Keanu Reeves. You might be asking, why would you do that? Well, why would I not do that? Because Keanu Reeves is the best of men. Men out there, you're never going to be as great as Keanu. And I'm sorry about that, but try, always try. Endeavour to be as great as Keanu. And it's really hard sometimes to link Keanu to movies because he's never been in a Terminator movie. And I, I expect a lot of people will say, oh, Keanu's a robot in every single movie. And that's just really mean. And I would never say that about him. But what I will say is that at the time of Terminator 2's release, there were quite a few Keanu movies that were out. So Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which... Also starred robots, actually. That came out a couple of weeks after Terminator 2. And then the week after, Point Break came out at the cinema. Can you imagine being a person, going to the cinema in 1991 and seeing Terminator 2 Judgment Day and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and Point Break? I mean, wow, what a time to be alive. I'll get round to doing episodes on both of those movies eventually, but that's a good Keanu sandwich. You've got Terminator 2 filling and then the bread is two Keanu movies. I mean, that sounds like a pretty perfect day out to me. Music in movies is one of those things that instantly transports you. Like if you hear John Williams' Jaws score or his Star Wars score or his Jurassic Park score or basically anything that John Williams has ever done or pretty much any fantastic score in history, it will just take you back to that movie. And the music from Terminator 2 is exactly that. It was composed by the same guy who did the music for the Terminator, Brad Fiedel. He was again working in his garage in Studio City, Los Angeles. Cameron would say to him, quote, Brad, I just want you to know you're scoring the most expensive film ever made in your garage. And it was difficult for him to commit to an orchestral score because... He would not receive the finished footage until late into the production because certain effects had to be completed and his music needed to match the on-screen action. Due to the emphasis on Teenage John and a more honourable Terminator, Fiedel and Cameron wanted the musical tone to be warmer. While the majority of the instruments in the Terminator music were oscillators and synths, Fiedel captured actual instruments and altered their tones for a score that, I'd argue is actually better than the Terminator score. It's the score that I remember more. I guess maybe because I've watched this movie more than the Terminator, but it just takes you there straight away. You just know what that music is. And for this movie, the music connection didn't really stop because Arnold Schwarzenegger agreed to collaborate with Guns N' Roses because they were well known and because, and I'm not even joking here, because there is a rose in the movie and bloody guns. And so basically TriStar said, will you be in a music video with Guns N' Roses for their song You Could Be Mine? It was the lead song from their second album. 
And the video was created by Stan Winston, Andrew Morahan, and Jeffrey Abelson, and basically stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as the T-800 pursuing the band. And the fascinating stories about this movie continue because this movie came out seven years after The Terminator. The Terminator had been a surprise hit, but when it came to making a sequel, would audiences actually understand? Would they want to see Arnie back as his most famous character? Terminator 2 was set to be the most expensive film ever made, so there was a lot riding on its success. And when it came to marketing this movie, they wanted to whet appetites. But in the pre-internet days, before we knew everything about a film's production and what was coming and when it was coming, so the question was, how do you market Terminator 2 Judgment Day? But the question had actually already been answered because the marketing had already been done. The marketing had actually been done during pre-production. And this is a fascinating story. So during pre-production, a $150,000 teaser trailer was made. This trailer contained no footage from the movie because the movie hadn't even started filming at that point. And the idea for the marketing came from Stan Winston. And he suggested a Terminator production line with an identical Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator rolling off the line, his eyes glowing red, and then this simple T2 hits the screen. Schwarzenegger was filming Kindergarten Cop at the time, and he agreed to shoot the couple of scenes necessary, uttering the phrase, I'll be back, as he does like to do. And this very simple promotional teaser would wind up in cinemas in 1990, a whole year before Terminator 2's release, as well as be included on VHS copies of Schwarzenegger's movie Total Recall. And this teaser did its job. It teased. It gave nothing away about the plot, but gave enough narrative for anyone to understand what could be coming. It wasn't the first Tila Tracer with no actual footage, but it's definitely one of the most memorable. And it still slaps to this day. I'll put it in the show notes if you want to see it or be reminded of it. And interestingly, the actual trailer for this movie gave away more than its teaser trailer did the year before, which is, is kind of ironic, really, because I feel like Terminator trailers for the franchise in particular, they've always been really good at giving away key plot points for the movie that really should stay secret. Terminator Genesis quite famously spoiled a plot twist in its movie. I've still not seen Genesis and I still really have no intention of seeing Genesis. But a bit like Batman before it, this was obviously a couple of years from Batman. And what an amazing success Batman had been when it came to promotional work, marketing, tie-ins. Terminator 2 Judgment Day had a pre-release marketing campaign. It was estimated to be worth $20 million. It included tie-ins with Subway, Pepsi, who were featured prominently in the movie as product placement, and obviously the appearance by Schwarzenegger in a Guns N' Roses music video. Unlike many movies, test screenings for this movie went exceptionally well, and the ending was often quoted as the favourite scene of the movie. It also had a popular video game, which I mentioned in the episode I did on Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. It's integral to the story of Mortal Kombat, actually, so please have a listen to that episode. In 1996, T2 3D Battle Across Time, a live-action attraction, was opened at Universal Studios Florida and later at Hollywood and Japan. 
The 20-minute attraction was co-written and directed by James Cameron. It cost $60 million to make, included live-action stunts, and a $24 million 12-minute 3D film starring Schwarzenegger, Hamilton, Patrick and Furlong, making it the most expensive film per minute. I have been to Universal Studios, actually in Florida, and I have experienced Battle Across Time, and it genuinely scared the bejesus out of me because I think at the time, <laughs> I thought it was real. I don't know, that sounds weird. But you go on this tour around like Cyberdyne and then Sarah Connor appears on these TV screens and basically says, you've got to get out. And I was like, oh my God, is this real? Like, do I have to get out? <laughs> it, yeah, it's a strange experience, but it was very enjoyable. And it's something that I will never forget going to see. Terminator 2 Judgment Day had its premiere on the 1st of July 1991 at the Cineplex Odeon in Century City, Los Angeles. And this was a major event. It was attended by huge celebrities. It released nationwide on the 3rd of July 1991, instantly becoming the number one film at the box office, ahead of The Naked Gun 2 and a half, and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves as well. Over the five-day Independence Day holiday weekend, Terminator 2 earned $52.3 million dollars, becoming the second highest grossing opening five-day total ever behind Batman, interestingly, with 57 million, and at the time, the highest grossing opening Wednesday with $11.8 million. And as I said, it emulated Batman. For the general frenzy, it seemed to cause at cinema chains with people wanting to see it. And interestingly as well, the R rating didn't dissuade people. In fact, it encouraged people. Even kids that were clearly too young to see Terminator 2 Judgment Day would be desperate to watch Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It would end up at number one. It would stay at number one for four weeks before being dethroned by Hot Shots, which I love. I mean, I love that Hot Shots dethroned Terminator 2, but I also love Hot Shots. It's so much fun. The movie's also been re-released three times in 2003 and 2017, which was a 3D remaster, which... James Cameron undertook for a year and also in 2020 as well. On its reported $102 million budget, this information is from Box Office Mojo, domestically it would make $204.8 million. Internationally, it earned $312.1 million for a total of $520 million. And it is the highest grossing film of 1991 in the US and worldwide. And at the time, the third highest grossing film ever behind Star Wars with $530 million and E.T. the Extraterrestrial at $619 million. I don't need to tell you that this movie is almost universally acclaimed by critics and viewers. It was also acclaimed at the 64th Academy Awards. It would go on to win four awards, Best Makeup, Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Visual Effects, as well as nominations for Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing. It was the first film to win an Academy Award when its predecessor had not been nominated. It also won Best Sound and Best Special Visual Effects at the 45th BAFTA Awards, as well as a nomination for Best Production Design. Four sequels followed Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines in 2003, Terminator Salvation in 2009, Terminator Genesis in 2015 and Terminator Dark Fate in 2019, most of which were very good. And I don't want to focus on the sequels, just to say that according to James Cameron, the Terminator franchise ended with Judgment Day. And it should have ended with Judgment Day because those two, perfect duology. This was despite him coming back to write Dark Fate, which is actually okay and definitely the most enjoyable of all the sequels. But 
I can't remember most of them. So <laughs> that's the most recent one. So that's why I can remember it more. And while you might think that James Cameron reaped the financial benefits of these movies, he didn't because he sold the rights. And so the rights to Terminator bounced around several studios in the 2000s and the 2010s before reverting back to him in 2019. He would make no money from Rise of Machines, Salvation or Genesis. He would call this period the costs of a Hollywood education. Let's move on to some thoughts. So I like to ask what people think of the movies that I feature. I like to ask the patrons. I like to ask Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And we're going to start with the patrons. And we're going to start with Stuart. And Stuart says, This film, along with Aliens, meant you can outperform your previous entry. Shame the James Cameron decline happened a few films on. Practical stunts were good, even though it's clearly not Arnie on bike. Most of the CG still holds up. I'm also don't mind T3, Salvation, Genesis or Dark Fate. I do think perhaps they should leave the franchise alone for 20 years or so and perhaps take it back to basics. Looking forward to this one, M. Thank you. It's a rather long one, but I hope you're enjoying it. And perennial commenter Andy returns for his comment. And he says, The story of the T-1000 told in the Disney docuseries Light and Magic is one of the greatest stories of movie-making ingenuity, pairing the new technology of computer graphics and my nemesis, math. While this film is a dazzling display, it is also the last time I truly enjoyed a James Cameron film. The all-out bombast that was on full display in T2 was replaced by cringe Islamophobia in True Lies, his unsinkable ego cruise in Titanic, and the effects over everything else of Avatar. I choose to believe that the James Cameron who lovingly one-upped himself with T2 was replaced by a body snatcher, but that's a story for another time. We have another patron comment from Brendan who says, Maybe the ultimate breakout sequel and arguably the iconic action epic from one of the great blockbuster authors featuring the action star of his era cementing his defining role. Yeah, it's pretty good. Another patron comment from Derek here who says, From the phenomenal special effects, iconic performances and amazing action, T2 is a gem. Add on top the mediation of the role of fate versus free will, the role of AI in humanity's fall and the way John Connor teaches a robot to cry and you get one of the best movies of all time. And now's a really good time to tell you about Derek's podcast, actually, because he and his wife, Laurel, they host an amazing podcast. It's called The Midnight Myth. And they basically look at modern movies and TV shows and cast a historical, mythological and philosophical lens on those movies and TV shows. And it is such a fascinating podcast and I learned so much from them. It should absolutely be in your podcast app. You should be listening to that podcast and listening to this one and then listening to that one and then listening to this one because it is genuinely that good. Not that I'm saying mine's that good, but theirs genuinely is that good. So I'll put some information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. And the final patron comment comes from Zoe who says, Come with me if you want to live is probably one of the most important lines in all of cinema. And speaking of cinema, Zoe's podcast is called Backlook Cinema and he hosts that alongside his son, Zach. And it's basically him introducing Zach to, well, all of the movies that we all grew up with. A bit like Terminator 2 Judgment Day, actually, because it is important to introduce slightly older, I'm not going to say they're old movies, slightly older movies to the younger generation because these movies are awesome this is really movie making at its absolute finest and this is exactly the sort of thing that we should be introducing kids like zach to 
So I'll also put a link in the show notes for Backlook Cinema. Please have a listen to Zoe and Zach's podcast as well. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at the cat film fan who said, There are two wolves inside of me. One loves movie and the other thinks T2 is the greatest film ever made. The VFX blew my mind. JC is the master of combining action thrills with heart and humour. All the performances are iconic and the score is incredible. At DW Lundberg said, One of the great summer blockbusters, although not one of the greatest movies or even sequels of all time. Wows us with heavy metal action and eye-popping FX, but is more or less content to repeat the same story structure and set pieces as the original, just on a larger scale. At Breakfast underscore Club said, Even though it's bigger and the baddies better, the genre switch from the horror of T1 to the out-and-out action of T2 loses some of the magic for me. So incredible and memorable scenes, but equally too many scenes of young John playing the Guns N' Roses song as he rides his bike. At Chriswell84 said, Loved this when I first saw it as a kid, even more than the original, which I saw after. Now that I'm older, I like the original a lot more and T2 somewhat less. Maybe it's a change in sensibilities or having just watched a lot more movies. At Dissect That Film said, Not just one of the greatest sequels of all time, but one of the greatest action films of all time. Great early effects by ILM, great performances all around, but Robert Patrick as the T-1000 takes the cake. An edge-of-your-seat rollercoaster ride from start to finish. At Mr London underscore NCB said, This was a summer of big blockbusters. T2 was stylish, bombastic, amazing special effects, liquid metal, and one of only two films I ever watched twice at the cinema, the other being Basic Instinct, and not because of that scene, it was a first-class thriller. At Chat Tsunami Pod said, We discussed this in our episode, but T2 is both the best and worst thing to happen to the series. Best because it's a great action film, but worst because every subsequent film kept trying to copy it. At Craig SG1 said, this will always be dear to me. Not only is it a magnificent film, but after watching a beat-up Betamax copied off TV, The Terminator, I got to see the sequel in the cinema when my mother snuck me in at 13 years old. It blew my mind and to this day, still my best cinema experience. At Cinema Medicine said, So this is the Cameron special where he just takes an idea and the sequel expands upon it. The world building and storytelling in this film is top tier. At Harley Mumford said, An all-time classic. This movie is a perfect sequel in my opinion. It floors me that James Cameron made a sequel that is so tonally different to the first movie, not to mention the great twist on Arnie's T-800, Sarah's growth, the action set pieces and the terrifying T-1000. At The Digressor said, I like every Terminator movie, regardless of what anyone says, but T2 remains by far my favourite in the franchise. At films underscore that said, find out on Tuesday because we're covering the same film this week. Laughing smiley. At Love Matician said, James Cameron is the goat of movie sequels. His ability to build upon worlds and expand them to new destinations is incredible. Calling it right now, Avatar 2 is going to be a mind-blowing experience. At Stand Even Search 1 said, it's so good that I really struggle with people saying the first one is better. I think they like to be edgy. Oh, it's gritty and nihilistic. No, T2 is relentlessly entertaining from beginning to end. The best action film ever. At Cranberry Elect simply says, It was good. Moving over to Instagram, we're going to start with at Greg Claw, who said, Shows that for John was targeted for termination, so he sent back and fought fire with fire. 
at The Coolness Chronicles said, Together with The Matrix and Jurassic Park, it's a watershed triptych of 1990s American action blockbusters. At Pirate Queen 2000 said, Best sci-fi action movie ever made. Fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. Hands up emoji, hands up emoji, hands up emoji, hands up emoji. At John underscore Cena underscore Hustle Loyalty Respect says, One of the best sequels of all time. At Has Wild said, Probably my favourite action movie. The only movie 99% of guys will cry at. Laughing emoji. And at Rose Kells said, One of the best fantastic movies in the series, hands down. No comments over on Facebook, which is surprising. But then again, this is Facebook, so kind of not surprising if you know this podcast and Facebook comments on this podcast. But a huge amount of comments on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for getting involved in this episode. This episode is probably going to be the biggest solo episode that I've ever done. And so the biggest solo episode that I've ever done deserves the biggest and the best comments. And I really do think that everyone who's given a comment has just given a fantastic comment. And so just a huge thank you to everyone, to the patrons, to everyone on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, even though they didn't comment. But <laughs> but to everyone, thank you so much for commenting on this episode on Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Both of James Cameron's best movies, in my opinion, focus on found family and sudden parenthood. Aliens, as two mothers, face off against each other, both fiercely protective of their young and wanting to be the dominant species. And Terminator 2, as a fatherless kid with an emotionally distant mother, but not through any fault of her own, learns how to have that father-son relationship with a machine sent back by himself from the future to protect his younger self. Don't spend too much time thinking about the logic of time travel, because it will start to grate. But the beauty of this movie really always was that James Cameron closed his own time loop. I'm not going to mention the Terminator arm that was trapped in the machinery because it's just one of those silly plot holes everyone mentions. But basically, T2 did a great job of supposedly closing off any franchise potential by fixing the future. Now, Hollywood being Hollywood didn't agree. and We ended up with more sequels, none of which are memorable enough to capture any of the charm, visual splendour or humanity of T2. Because the relationship between humanity and the machines is a fascinating core idea. What makes us human and then machines? Is it just a case of flesh and blood versus metal and code? Or is it more than that? Sarah Connor has grown and become a tragic character, fully believing in Judgment Day and doing everything to train her only son to become the hero he's destined to be, never giving her son a proper childhood and never giving him the father figure he craved. She's focused and distant and is actually slowly losing her humanity. The T-800's sole purpose is to protect John, but he ends up doing more than that. He learns from John. The character grows and evolves beyond his programming, not only following John's orders to not harm people, but actually starting to value human life beyond what John asks of him. Both the T-800 and Sarah are the complete antithesis of what they're supposed to be, he becomes more human, she becomes more machine-like, almost murdering Miles Dyson in front of his wife and son before regaining some of her humanity at the last minute. It's no coincidence that James Cameron chose to fit the T-1000 as a police officer, an authority figure who knows they're an authority figure, as well as depicting a SWAT team 
shooting an unarmed Miles Dyson, the only black man in the movie without warning, as opposed to requesting the T-800 drop his weapon before shooting. Much has been made of the career boost this movie gave Schwarzenegger, who was already a huge star. Still the biggest film of his entire career, he would go on to lampoon his action star credentials in his next movie, Last Action Hero, which is highly underrated. I've got an episode on that one too, please check it out. He would reunite with James Cameron for True Lies. Linda Hamilton, despite the struggles making this movie, would move in with James Cameron after the movie was finished, have a child with him and marry him in 1997 before they subsequently divorced in 1999. Young Edward Furlong struggled with the pressures of his sudden newfound fame, ending up in a relationship with his tutor who was 13 years his senior when he was only 15. Unsurprisingly, as a statutory rape victim, he struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction, but announced in 2021 that he had been clean and sober for three years. Despite the film's success, Carol Cohn reported 1991 losses of $265.1 million, which was caused by the financial problems of its other films and its subsidiaries. Despite investor support, the studio filed for bankruptcy in 1995 and its assets, including Terminator 2, were sold to Canal Plus for $58 million. Terminator 2 Judgment Day's legacy is clear. Look at what came after. The advent of incorporating CG into a movie so seamlessly, the technology kept getting more advanced, and now sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. What I love about this movie is the perfect blend of CG and practical effects. Often on this podcast, I'm whining about CG. And I'm not. It's great. And this movie shows how it can be used effectively. I want more movies like this. Because compared to the most recent effort, Dark Fate, there's no weight in the car chasers in that movie because it's pretty much all CG. There's no impact when bullets hit. As much as I enjoyed Dark Fate for what it was, it was lacking in that realism that T2 has in spades. That's why this movie holds up. Not so much for the CG, which obviously doesn't look as good as it does 30 years later, but for how it feels. Actions feel like they have consequences. That nuclear apocalypse scene is iconic and it always will be because you can feel the consequences of humanity's actions. And while we look at this movie as predicting the future to a degree, especially in the rise of AI and potential sentience, ultimately we have control over our own destinies. There is no fate but what we make. If we don't want the world to burn, well, let's try and fix climate change and reverse the future where the world burns. Let's fix the reliance on fossil fuels and ruining our oceans and landfills with single-use plastics that take a thousand years to decompose. We do have control, we do have power, but we need to choose to use that power. Because honestly, I don't think time travel will exist in 2029 or whenever our judgment day is due to occur. But if it does, and our kids or our grandkids send back machines to save us, maybe the lasting legacy of Terminator 2 Judgment Day is that we choose to listen to that advice. And let's maybe rely less on Siri and Alexa, just in case. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Terminator 2 Judgment Day. If you do want to get involved and you want to help this podcast grow, you're getting involved right now because you're listening to me talk and that's amazing. But if you have enjoyed this podcast and you have enjoyed other episodes, please consider supporting this podcast by telling your friends and family about it or leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchase or wherever you found it, actually. Most podcast apps now include a review feature and it always helps. 
And you can also follow me on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And you can also retweet or like posts that you find on social media. I'm most prevalent on Twitter, I'll be honest. But you can find me and follow me anywhere and you can comment and you can like and that would be really cool too. I would love to hear from you, basically. You can also get involved. You can have your comment read out. Thoughts posts go up on a Saturday, usually for future episodes. And you can tell me what you think of the movie and I will read your comment out in episodes and I will give you a little credit in the show notes as well. If you like this episode on Terminator 2 Judgment Day, you might also like one of the following movies and the episode that's associated with it. So I'm going to recommend episode 107, Last Action Hero, because it's the movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger made after this, and it basically completely sends up his action hero persona. He's really funny in Last Action Hero. Yes, it's got problems, that movie, but it's so much fun, and it's just a total send-up of everything to do with action movies and kids in action movies and heroes in action movies and... It's just a lot of fun. I rewatched it for the podcast episode that I did and I really, really enjoyed it. And it's a really underrated treat. It's a great family movie. And the episode that I did, I'm really proud of that episode of Last Action Hero. So that's episode 107. You should absolutely listen to that one. Episode 114, Aliens, because it's James Cameron and it's Aliens. And I love that movie. And it is my favourite Alien movie. And this is my favourite Terminator movie. And... Yeah, there are a lot of links between Aliens and Terminator 2. They're both great sequels. They're both great standalone movies. They both have themes of family and togetherness and found family and parenthood. And parenthood under different circumstances as well. Don't ask me to choose between them because I don't think I can. But if you haven't seen Aliens, please watch Aliens. Um, it's available on Disney+, Plus, so you've got no excuse. And then listen to my episode because it's one of my favourite episodes that I've ever done. Episode 164, The Terminator, because it's the predecessor to this. So it makes sense. If you watch this, then you'll watch The Terminator. Um, completely different movie. It's like Alien and Aliens, just two completely different genres. But they complement each other and they work really well. And it's exactly the same with The Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Please have a listen to that episode too. And finally... Episode 171, Grease 2, because the cool rider is in this movie and um, it's another sequel and it's another sequel that's better than the original and don't come for me on that. Give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Let me know if you think I got it right, especially about Grease 2, because I know a lot of you will think I got that right. Next episode. So sequel Timber will be concluding, but it will be concluding with an absolute bang. Or should that be a da-da-da? Because Adam's Family Values is a movie that I know you all want. And since the Adam's Family episode still continues to do bloody brilliant numbers, it's about time that you got what you deserve. More Adamses with really one of the best sequels that I think has ever been made. Adam's Family Values, which surprises a lot of people, I think, when you see the Adam's Family and how wonderful that movie is. And then to get Adam's Family Values as well, I mean perfection absolute perfection i love the adams family movies and i'm so excited to be bringing you adams family values next i mentioned a little while ago how you can support this podcast without paying a single penny and that's really important to me especially right now because people often don't have the money to spend on podcasts and this podcast is free and it always will be free but if you do want to help support this podcast 
then you can go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you can join the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas, So, Kev, Pete, Heather and Danny. Hasta la vista, patrons. I know I promised there'd be no more, but that was the last one, I promise. I have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can also say hi to me. You can get in touch, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can visit my website, verbaldiorama.com. You can visit me at filmstories.co.uk. I recently wrote an article about podcasters in film and TV. I'm very proud of that article. Please read it. And please also buy copies of the magazine that I write for. And finally, I was going to end this episode with a, I'll be back. (laughs) But then I realised there's only one man that could end this episode for me. And that is Mr. Tim Bisley. I I don't, just give me a reason. You know, you you think I'm unemotional, don't you? I can be emotional. Jesus, I cried like a child at the end of Terminator 2. You know, with this, the thumb and the molten, you know. Bye. Vision of